Let's pray together. We ask, Heavenly Father, as we turn to the scriptures for wisdom, for blessing, for understanding that we might be the kind of people in the world you want us to be for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, here we are again in Matthew chapter 13, considering this chapter that tells us of the parables of the kingdom that Jesus told. And again, we follow a rural theme. Last week, we thought about the parable of the sower, or it could be called the parable of the soils. And this week, we turn to the next of these parables, the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Now, the parable throws up for us a very important question from the outset of great importance that troubles the people the world over. And the question is this, how is it that good and evil exist side by side in the world? How is it that good and evil exist side by side in the world? Why doesn't God rip out all the weeds? Why doesn't he root out all the evil that happens? Tragic events, accidents, floods, bushfires, tyrants and bullies, war. Why doesn't God stop all the evil? Why doesn't he do something about it? That's the question that many, many people are asking. To some, it's a real stumbling block. But to believers, it's a challenge. See, if Jesus is God's king and Jesus is bringing in God's kingdom, why is it so slow in coming? How do we make sense of a world where evil seems to have the upper hand and yet we know it doesn't triumph in the end? How do we make sense of the world in which we live? Often we veer towards two extremes. Some towards undue optimism on the one hand, The things are bound to get better and better as we try to capture the world for Jesus. On the other hand, some to resign cynicism. Things just seem to be going from bad to worse. Let's batten down the hatches. Let's just wait for Jesus to come back. But as we established from our studies earlier this year in Matthew 24... Jesus is not going to root out the evildoers. Jesus is not going to snatch away his church. But the more balanced view of the matter is in the parable, which tells us that both good and evil will continue side by side to the very end. Good and evil will continue. The sons of the kingdom and the sons of the evil one, good and evil will coexist right up to Judgment Day. That's what the parable teaches us. As much as we might like God to remove all the evil from the world, and later we'll find out why he won't, mercifully he's not going to do that. And this parable tells us why. Two headings this morning. First of all, the parable explains our present reality. 
The Scottish theologian James Denny said once that both the optimist who thinks the world is getting better and the pessimist who says the world is getting worse, both of them are wrong. Both of them are wrong. He says it's a process in which good and evil alike are coming to maturity, bearing the ripest fruit they can, proving their strength to the utmost against each other. What we are observing in the world is the antagonism of good and evil. The world is getting better and the world is getting worse. The good seed is growing, the sons of the kingdom are springing up all over the globe. The gospel is going out, people are getting converted. The grain on one stalk is now much more than the seed that was cast into the ground when Jesus died. Think of the church, universal, the size of it, the growth of it in parts of it. But at the same time, the weeds are also growing. With every week that passes, we note them. They're larger and more deeply rooted than before, perhaps ever before. And they're uglier than ever before. And they're reported on in the news a whole lot more. And this is what Jesus is telling us in the parable. When you look at the state of the world, you'll see good and evil side by side, vying with each other for ascendancy. Just look at world history. Most of us have been part of world history, I think. All of us are part of it. You may be able to think back to the last century, as I also can, A social commentator's told us that the last century was supposed to be the century where the human race really evolved towards utopia. Everything will be great. But if you know anything about the last century, you know that didn't happen. And you'll see when you look down at world history that every time the evil gets pushed down, it rises up again in some other sinister form. Even after 2,000 years of preaching the gospel... The world is much the same as it's always been. There are wars and rumours of wars. The wheat is growing, but the weeds are growing. And you know that not just from world history, but you know that by looking at yourself. I find that evil lives within me. I find that. When I look into my heart, I see the weeds are there. Paul said that in Romans 7, didn't he? that when he wants to do good, evil is right there beside him. Even in the church this is true. Not just the world, not just ourselves, but our, not just our own selves, but the church, us. Now, Jesus chose 12 disciples and what did he say? And one of you is a devil. And that was Judas. So what Jesus says here fits with our experience The wheat and weeds growing together. Now notice two things about the wheat and the weeds. Two things you wouldn't know unless you were a horticulturalist or maybe some kind of environmental scientist or a farmer of those days. Note the wheat and the weeds look the same at least when they first begin to grow. They look the same. There's this very specific word that's used here in the Greek to describe this particular weed. It isn't your common garden weed. 
It's a poisonous weed. It's extremely toxic. In fact, in a big enough dose, it could kill you if you ate this weed. And it looks so much like wheat that it's called wheat's evil twin. It's indistinguishable from the wheat and that's why it's so dangerous. And this weed doesn't appear or spring up just by itself. It's planted there by an enemy. We see that in verse 25, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and left. This is bioterrorism. This is agricultural sabotage. The farmer has a rival. He has a competitor who has set out to destroy the man's crops. And again, that's our present reality. According to Jesus, the field is the world. Notice that, by the way, because sometimes people take this parable and apply it to the church. It's not about the church. It's something to say to the church, but it's not about the church. It's about the world. Jesus says the field is the world. The good seed is growing, the bad seed is growing. And in the world there are two kingdoms vying for allegiance. There's two agendas, if you like. The agenda of Christ and his kingdom. And there's the agenda of the evil one. And there are these two kinds of sons in the world. The sons of the kingdom and the sons of the evil one. There have always been these two kinds of people in the world. Right back from the very beginning. You can go right back to Genesis 3, to the very first announcement of the gospel in verse 15, the time the first gospel was preached and it was preached to the evil one himself. God said, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he will strike your head and he will strike your heel. So the bad news for the evil one was that the seed of the woman would come into the world, would born into the human race, would one day turn the tables on him and crush his head. And so the whole story of the human race, the whole unfolding of the Bible is the story about the struggle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The unfolding story of how God is going to send into the world the serpent crusher, the saviour, and how Satan has been trying to stop that all along. We see it happen in chapter 4. It plays out in the story of Cain and Abel, two brothers, one a murderer, the other his victim, one a son of the evil one, the one a son of God. So what the scripture's saying is this, there's an enemy. There's an enemy who intends on sabotaging everything that God is doing. And notice the strategy here. While the man was sleeping, the enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat. You know, it's easy to fall asleep on the job, isn't it? It's easy to fall asleep on the job. How easy for us to forget that we have an enemy or forget who the enemy is. We sometimes revert to thinking that the enemy is human and we jump to what's happening in the political realm or in the social order. And of course, yes, there's an enemy in those realms, but we forget we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. 
We're wrestling against a spiritual power, the principalities and powers in the heavenly places that are against what God is up to and what God is doing. Peter found out that, didn't he? When Jesus was preparing him, saying, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to die. And Peter said, no way, Jose, that's not going to happen to you. No way. And what did Jesus say to Peter? Did he thank Peter for caring so much for him? I really appreciate your concern, Peter. Thank you so much. No, he said, get behind me, Satan. Don't you realise, in effect, there is an enemy who wants me not to go to the cross? Don't you realise there is no other way for sinners to be saved unless for me to be the seed that falls into the ground and dies? If that doesn't happen, there's no harvest. So in order for Christians to happen, the death of Christ had to happen. In order for there to be sons of the kingdom, Jesus had to die. So the enemy has been there from the beginning always seeking to destroy or derail the plan of God for the salvation of his people, always seeking to undo what God is planning to do, always sowing his seeds among the nations of the world. And we have an enemy that's certainly busy. He sows them in the church as well. When he was a young lawyer in South Africa, Mahatma Gandhi was very interested in Christianity He'd read the Sermon on the Mount and this created a great interest in Jesus. And as a result, he tried to go to the church in that country. In the days of apartheid, the church, the reformed church in that country. He tried to go, but he was turned back because of the colour of his skin. It poisoned him permanently against the church. He said, I will become a Christian if I could find one. And you may ask, well, how did that happen? And we could say, an enemy did this. This is how he operates. This is his strategy to sow weeds among the wheat. The other thing we need to notice, we're still on the first point, is that the wheat and the weeds are intertwined. The roots are entangled and they are tangled together so much you can't actually pull up the weeds without uprooting the wheat. You see that in verse 28. When the servants want to go and rip up the weeds, Jesus says, no, let both grow together until the harvest. Aren't you glad that Jesus said that? Let both grow together until the harvest? I mean, think about it. What if it wasn't that way? What if God suddenly said, okay, I'm going to rip up all the weeds, all the evil from the world rooted out? Where would that leave you? Where would that leave me? What a mercy it is that God has not separated the wheat from the weeds, that he allows both to grow together until the harvest Peter tells us that this shows the kindness and patience of God towards us, that he's not wishing that any should perish, but that all reach repentance. The wheat and weeds grow, that's what we're being told, and that means that your roots as a believer will be intertwined 
with the roots of people whose nature is different from yours. They're in a different kingdom to you. And that will be true wherever you are because your roots are intertwined, especially in your family. Your roots are so intertwined. In your workplace, among your friends. So Jesus is telling us, don't pull out of the task of sowing the good seed because the enemy, he's at work sowing the bad seed. Don't pull out of the task because sowing the seeds of his infernal kingdom happens all over the world in all walks of life. We spend a lot of time in the first point. The second point's a bit shorter and that's verses 36 to 43 and that we note the parable points us to a future certainty. A future certainty. Jesus, later in the house with his disciples, takes us to the end of the world and he reveals himself in these verses to be the final arbiter of human destiny. Make no mistake about it, these verses are plain. We may not like them, but they are plain. The day of judgment is coming and it's only a heartbeat away for any one of us. C.S. Lewis describes it like this in one of his, his famous broadcast talks. He said, I wonder whether people who ask God to openly to interfere openly and directly in our world quite realise what it will be like when he does that. God is going to invade all right, he says, and when that happens, when God invades, it's the end of the world. When the author walks onto the stage, the play is over. It will be something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. Wow, what a saying that is. It'll be too late. It'll be the time when we discover the side we chose. And so today, says Lewis, this moment is your chance to make sure you're on the right side. They talk about the right side of history. Well, let's talk about being on the right side of Jesus because it ultimately boils down to him. There is going to be this future division of the human race and we see in verse 41, the Son of Man will send out his angels and they will gather from his kingdom everything that causes sin and those guilty of lawlessness and they will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. One thing that Jesus is sure about what Jesus says here, it's pretty graphic. In fact, it's so graphic, it's terrifying. Jesus doesn't mince words when he talks about our eternal destiny. That's because he loves us. He doesn't want us to be on the wrong side of his judgment. The wheat and the weeds will be eternally separated. The harvest will come. The wheat gathered into God's barn. The weeds burned up. Now it's picture language and you might have some allowance for that 
But the reality is more sobering than the picture language itself. No one spoke as frequently about hell as Jesus. Jesus doesn't say this to frighten us. He says it to warn us. See, you're either a member of his family, a son or daughter of the kingdom by grace through faith, or you're a son of the evil one. There is no middle ground. There is no halfway house. There is no place where you're safe in the middle. There's only one way to be sure you're in the right group and that's by trusting in Jesus, by turning to him, by putting your hope in him and asking him to save you from the judgment that's to come and that's doing it now. Have you done that? Have you put your hope and trust in him to save you from the wrath to come. I'm sure I've used this story before, but I'll use it again. Some Christian businessmen got together and rented out some advertising space on the side of a major city building. What message would you put up there? You could put anything. Well, this is what they put in big letters. The end of all things is at hand. Flee to Jesus. He will save you you. They were spot on, weren't they? You must flee to Jesus for only he can save because it's all in his hands. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, sent his Methodist evangelists out all over the world. Some of them even came to Australia and preached on this soil in the first fleet. Wesley once said, the world is my parish. He averaged 15 sermons a week, preached more than 40,000 of them, and travelled more than 250,000 miles on horseback before they even had made roads. And he kept a diary And this is his entry in his diary in his journal for the 28th of May, 1742. We came to Newcastle, that's UK, not New South Wales, about six. And after a short refreshment, walked into the town, I was surprised so much. Drunkenness, cursing and swearing, even from the mouths of little children. Surely this place is ripe for what? What would you say? I've left it out. What would you say? Surely this place is ripe for judgment? He said, surely this place is ripe for him who came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. This place is ripe for the gospel of Jesus. When you look at the world, when you go out this week, when you share your existence with other people who don't share the same worldview as you, how do you see the world? Do you see it as ripe for judgment or do you see it ripe for the gospel of Jesus? What you see will determine the kind of seeds you'll be sowing and watering this week. That's the challenge to the church 
that the parable brings us. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. We're wheat among the weeds. And if we're going to be effective, we'll need the mindset to be like the one who said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We'll need to pray that the mind of Christ our Saviour will live in us from day to day. Let's pray and ask him to do that. Our gracious God, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the hope we have that Jesus has taken our judgment upon himself. And we pray for those whom we'll meet this week. They don't understand what's ahead. They don't, in many cases, even know what's ahead. Please help us to be the kind of people that will show by our words and our deeds and our actions that we know the one who has rescued us from what's coming. Please help us to have his mindset that the mind of Christ would live in us from day to day. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.